Well, today we are looking at Luke chapter 9, verses 1 through 36. Hopefully at this point you've had a chance to read it a couple times and digest it a little bit. I love that this passage comes at the beginning of a new year for us, um, at local church of Lenore City anyway, as we've spent the last year kind of praying and fasting that God would uh, guide and empower our disciple-making mission. Uh, that prayer really in the last couple of weeks, I feel like has kind of turned into Jesus would you send us, send us, Lord? And um, so even though we don't feel fully equipped in everything with discipleship, we're ready to step out in faith and to follow him and uh, maybe feeling similarly to these 12 men that Jesus sends out in the beginning of chapter nine. Just some notes on these sections. Verse six says that they went through the villages preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Well, what is their message? When they were preaching the gospel, what were they saying? Just a reminder to you, this is before Jesus died and resurrected, so it might not be the gospel like we've understood it, right? The gospel is the, the, about the kingdom of God. If you see that back in verse 2, he says, uh, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and cure diseases, those two things. And then that's kind of synonymous with verse 6. They were preaching the gospel and healing right? Also synonymous with verse 11, where it says that Jesus spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing, both of those things. So preaching the gospel and, and proclaiming the kingdom seem to be one in the same, at least at this point in the text. Even after the crucifixion, I'll add though, and after the resurrection and Jesus ascends, if you read the book of Acts, then part of the gospel proclamation is still the kingdom of God. And I think we should take note of that. That might be missing from some of the gospel that we've been proclaiming. And um, as I said before, and I hope you realize this, this is not a different gospel, the gospel of the kingdom than the gospel of Jesus dying for your sins so that you can be forgiven and go to heaven. It's not different than that, but it's just um, a fuller picture of the gospel. The kingdom of God is, to, to put it kind of in my own words, is an environment in which Creation worships God and experiences freedom from sin. An environment in which creation worships God and experiences freedom from sin. So to proclaim the kingdom of God is to say that that environment is available to us now. What is being revealed in the gospels is that the kingdom of God is available to us through Jesus. We're coming to find out here. In Mark's story, in Luke's story, rather. So, another thing here: Why might Jesus call the apostles to travel so lightly in this mission? Maybe he didn't want them to be criticized for taking advantage of people. Like, hey, we don't have anything to gain as we're sharing this message with you and healing you. Uh, maybe he wanted them to learn to be content with whatever God provides. Like, hey, go into this one home. Don't just wait for the next better option in your missionary stay to come up. But just stay where you're at. Um, certainly, he was teaching them. Um, to depend on God to provide or depend on Jesus to provide what he wants to in order to complete the mission that he's given to them. And may that be our prayer. Um, to shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them, like it says there at the end um, of that section, that just symbolizes uh, rejection of the kingdom of God, judgment that's going to come because of it, and then just kind of separating yourselves from that um, 
that way of life and that judgment that's going to come. So you just get the dust off your feet. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm not connected with that. <coughs> Excuse me. The next section we see that Herod is a little bit perplexed. Talks about John the Baptist so far regarding John the Baptist. <coughs> Specifically, what Luke has shared is his birth narrative, his calling as a precursor of Christ, um, his baptism, his prophetic ministry in the wilderness. Um, we also already found out that Herod had imprisoned him for kind of not minding his own business. And uh, then a couple chapters ago, he was kind of questioning and struggling through, wait, who is Jesus who I, I, I think he is or not? And here in ch chapter 9, there's some new information. We find that Herod has now at this point beheaded John. Okay, there's more details in some of the other gospel accounts. But this section, again, uh, as much of the gospel is doing, sets up this question, who is Jesus? Of course, they give some popular theories here. Maybe he's John the Baptist. Maybe he's Elijah. Maybe he's a certain prophet of old. Um, when they say that, I think, this is me, um, I think that specifically people thought maybe Jesus could be Moses resurrected. Moses actually said in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Okay, um, but regardless of a, a prophet of old, one of those guys, um, the assumption is Jesus must be a prophet and maybe one of the very special prophets of old resurrected. Then we see uh, a miracle that is one of the few recorded in all four of the Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. What can we learn from that? Um, I, that should maybe be part of our discussion after this teaching here. But for now, let's just say that Jesus provided what was needed. His disciples need nothing but to serve others based on the provision that Jesus gives. Sound like anything else that we just read. Um, but the mission that he had sent out the 12 with, depending on the provision of the Lord, the miraculous provision of the Lord. So the disciples were learning here to minister to others through the empowerment and the, the, the provision of Jesus. Maybe we can learn that we should never tell Jesus, oh, I could never do that. Instead, we should say, Jesus, if you provide, then I'll serve it up. In the next section, again, the question comes up, who is Jesus? And just like with Herod, the possibilities given by people are a list of some great prophets, John the Baptist, Elijah, a certain prophet of old, maybe like Moses. Uh, but Peter knows when he's questioned that Jesus is the Messiah. He says he's the Christ of God. Jesus, you are the Christ of God. Christ, of course, meaning Messiah. Messiah meaning the, the chosen, saving long-awaited king. So it's God's chosen saving king. That's who Peter is saying that he understands Jesus is, um, in essence, not just a prophet like one of those other prophets. And by Jesus responding to Peter's confession, hey, don't tell anyone, he's saying, yes, you're right. That is who I am. You've, you've correctly evaluated that. Well, why, I wonder, did Jesus immediately go from Peter's confession to the next section where he's like, hey, don't tell anyone. And by the way, I'm going to suffer and die. Because uh, for one, tradition in the Jewish world expected a victorious ruler in the Messiah, right? We've talked about that before. Somebody who would take down oppressive Rome and lead the people in peace and prosperity forever. And so you wouldn't expect 
a suffering servant like Jesus describes here. Human nature assumes that the rise to glory is up. And here Jesus is saying it's down. So here and in the other gospels, Jesus first defines himself as the Messiah, which is verbalized by Peter's confession. And then Jesus defines his Messiahship where his suffering would precede his glory. And that would have been very hard to grasp, especially for these first century Jews, not knowing what we now know about who Jesus is. And then if that wasn't whiplash enough in their thought process, then Jesus makes it really personal for his disciples. In verse 23, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Maybe you can kind of imagine the ups and downs of Peter and the others when they're like, hey, we've figured out who you are. You're God's chosen one. You're the saving king. You're the victorious ruler that's been prophesied from ages past and the one to whom all nations will bow down. And we, your disciples here, especially the 12, we're your inner circle. But the mood quickly changes when Jesus says, yes, but don't tell anyone because I'm going to suffer and be killed and if you want to follow me, you're going to take the same path. Take up your cross for us is a figure of speech, right? We usually don't take it literally. I can think of a hundred ways that somebody might quote unquote take up their cross, right? But not so for the first hearers of this. They didn't know it as a metaphor like we know it. To them, Taking up your cross is what criminals were forced to do as they carry this heavy cross to their crucifixion and a bloody death, right? Verse 23, um, the ESV says, let him deny himself. I think that's slightly more passive than it should read. It's actually a third person imperative. And so some of the translations in IV, in AS, they say it like this. If you want to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross every day and follow. It's a, it's a command. That's what you have to do if you're going to come after Jesus. Now, obviously, there is some metaphor here because you can't, um, you can't die every day, right? So there's, there's a metaphor to it. Um, but should we breathe a sigh of relief because of that? The daily cross-bearing did in fact turn into literal death for some of those. And still today, some follow Jesus at the cost of their literal lives and through torture. And we know might not face literal martyrdom because of our context. So should we then breathe a sigh of relief? Are we off the hook because of the country that we live in? This verse, I love how clear it is, verse 23, and he said to all. Now this is okay. That's all that maybe the 12 It's limited to them. No. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me or whoever comes after me, are you coming after Jesus? Then you must deny yourself and take up your cross every day and follow him. And by all means, don't let the unlikeliness of the literal version of taking up your cross happening keep you from the easier versions of it where you don't have to quite literally be killed. In fact, we probably should think, well, if some would have to actually give up their lives, then surely I can give up fill in the blank. My bank account, my social status, my afternoon. 
See, those are less than a literal cross, right? So of course they would be on the table to deny oneself of and to give up. Sometimes I think it's the extreme sound of the metaphor and how we might not actually be required to give up our literal lives for the gospel. Somehow that makes us think that this verse is irrelevant. Oh good, I'm not gonna have to give up my life. Like, I guess this verse doesn't apply to me. We don't live in that same time or place. But as one commentator pointed out that I read, the world now is just as much the world as it has ever been. Satan now is just as much Satan as he's ever been. The flesh is just as much the flesh as it's ever been. Things like integrity, purity, humility are just as difficult as ever to put on. Is it getting any easier to, to deny yourself of materialism and power and security? Deny yourself. Take up your cross daily. Surely we don't have to do that. Jesus did. Are you greater than your master? I wrote down here, just as surprised as a first century Jew finding out that the Messiah must suffer and die is a 21st century American Christian finding out that they must suffer and die. Oh, we don't like to think about that. Some of us haven't heard much of that. Verse 24 Whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Life, that word, um, has two meanings in the Greek. One means like physical life, and one means like the life of the soul, or true life, or even eternal life. Basically, Jesus is using that double meaning of the word to say that Although our human nature, our, our human desire is to preserve both of those things, the life and the soul, you really can't. You have to choose to prioritize one or the other. This cost of discipleship, it's not a popular teaching. It doesn't sound pleasant, right? Give up your life. Give up your own agenda. Deny yourself. Die daily. But y'all, we have to teach this. That has to be a part of what we talk about with entering the kingdom of God. I don't, I don't like that Jesus said these things. It's kind of an embarrassment to the good news that we're trying to present to people. People aren't going to want to follow this. Tell it. It's what Jesus said. Don't be ashamed or he'll be ashamed of you when he comes in glory. It's not hard to understand. It's very clear what he teaches in the cost of discipleship. Hard to apply, not hard to understand. Now the next verse is a little hard to understand. Verse 27, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Well, what's he referring to? The, there's two main interpretations to that. One is that uh, some wouldn't taste death until they see the kingdom of God, meaning Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, where God's people start to kind of spread his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Now, I'm not sure why he would say there are some standing here because arguably all of them, well, all of them, less Judas, um, would be seeing that. So why he would use the word some is a little bit odd. The second main uh, interpretation that people give or explanation is that he's referring to the transfiguration or the story that's about to happen in the next section. And I think that's correct, actually, based on the context. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this verse is always found in between that previous verse about the future glory of Christ when he comes and the transfiguration, which is Christ giving a, a glimpse of his own glory to who? To some, just Peter, James, and John. And it wasn't going to be very far away. It's just eight days or about a week after um, he said this. So I think that's probably what he's talking about, that some would see the kingdom of God in their own lifetime. 
has something to do with seeing the full radiant glory of Jesus. And then the last section, this is the section um, that seems to be answering the question of the earlier sections. Who is Jesus? Remember Herod's asking that? Jesus asked Peter, who am I? Who do you think I am? Uh, people are trying to figure out, is Jesus just another powerful prophet? And this transfiguration really highlights the uniqueness of Jesus, saying there is no other like him. We see no one has glory like Jesus. Jesus was the one in the story shining with dazzling white in his glory. And there's no other prophet like him. It's interesting, and people have kind of surmised different reasons. Why do Moses and Elijah show up here? Why the two of them? Why is it specifically them? There's different answers that we could maybe come up with. These, uh, some people say these are two um, Old Testament saints who had kind of odd departures from earth, right? Both of them had these weird deaths, or not even really death for Elijah. Um, at least we can say that these were like the great Old Testament prophets, their names even are kind of summarizing the entire Hebrew scripture. The law is Moses, who is also a prophet, and the prophets, which could be um, maybe the synecdoche for that, is Elijah. The whole law and the prophets, this is, these are the big ones right here, Moses and Elijah. I think, personally, uh, this is me, um, that it's these two for, for this reason. Remember that they along with John the Baptist, they were the ones that were the most likely candidates people were saying of who they thought Jesus might be. Peter, James, and John now, if, if, if it's between, okay, who is Jesus? John the Baptist, Elijah, or that particular prophet of old, which I think is referring to Moses. So Peter, James, and John could rule out John the Baptist. No, it's not him because they'd seen Jesus and John minister together, right, or be together. Um, now they can certainly rule out Elijah and the certain prophet of old, Moses, because they're standing with Jesus. Okay, so he's different from them. One commentator pointed out that uh, we grow up in this environment where Jesus is obviously more significant than Moses and Elijah, but that wouldn't have been perfectly clear for Peter and James and John. They just know we are standing among the greats, the great prophets. So much so that Peter doesn't even really know what to say, and he offers to build some tents or, or tabernacles for each one of them. But what happens then is a cloud comes down on them and around the person of Jesus, and I think that's very significant as we think back to the Old Testament. Listen to what happened in Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. After they had built the tent or finished the tabernacle that God was to dwell in. It says in Exodus 40, 34, then the cloud covered the tent of the meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Here again, God's glory comes down like a cloud, not on a tabernacle anymore, but on a person in whom the glory of God dwells fully and meets with man. And that person is not just a prophet like Elijah, like Moses, but he is, God says, the son of God. He's my son. He's the chosen one. He is the Messiah. There's no other like him. And because he's the glorified, specially chosen son of God, unlike any other, God says, listen to him. Now, isn't it gracious and timely of Jesus 
to show himself like this right after he dropped the bomb of, hey, I am the Messiah, but not like you planned. I'm going to suffer and be killed. And if you're going to come after me, you're going to have to take that same path. So I know it, it, it doesn't feel right. It's not going to feel right. But, but don't be confused, Peter, James, and John. Be assured of who I am. And he gives them a glimpse of his glory. And I think that should help us out because Jesus is sending us to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. Jesus is telling us to trust his provisions for that task. Whatever he provides, we're going to use that to serve others, even if we didn't think we could do that. Jesus is also telling us, you must deny yourself and take up your cross daily and follow me. And in doing these things, we might be confused sometimes, right? Like it might not feel right. You might have questions. Why does this have to happen? Questions about the nature of, of who Jesus is. We might at times be like, can I really listen to him and where he's telling me to go? But God, in this final section here, is assuring Peter, James, and John, and assuring us this is my son, my chosen one. Yes, listen to him.